You're listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back into the FC Young Adults Podcast. We are continuing our sub-thread, um, yours, mine, and ours. If you go to Faith Chapel, uh, you know that Pastor Nate uh, talked about how we are to engage with poverty as followers of Jesus, and um, it was absolutely incredible. You can check that out on the Faith Chapel podcast or on uh, faithchapel.cc and find the full service there. What I want to do is something a little bit different as we talk about engagement with the marginalized. Um, I want to look at some different passages about how Jesus specifically engaged with marginalized groups of people and what that means for us today. And fair warning, this is uh, going to be like a couple minutes on each one of these things. It could easily be an entire uh, sermon series, which we might have to do in the future. But uh, I want to look at at five different groups of people that Jesus interacted with and ways that, that we can model ourselves after him. So the first point this week is that Jesus welcomed children. Matthew chapter 19, verse 14 says, Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When we look at scripture uh, partnered with biblical and cultural context, we see a really interesting picture painted when it comes to kids. On one hand, we know that children were highly desired. God called the Israelites to be fruitful, to multiply, and he also calls them a heritage from the Lord. Um, If a woman was unable to have children, uh, it was often considered a disability, and not even necessarily a physical disability, but sometimes a spiritual disability, that they would believe that something is happening um, spiritually sinful within her, and that is the reason why she is not able to to have kids. There was great pride in being able to have children. That's that's why we hear the story of like Abraham and Sarah and and, and all of these different uh, stories about how important it was to have kids. But on the other hand, kids did not really bring that much value to the table as far as contribution. In a culture that required a lot of labor, children were of little value until they could actually contribute to the family unit. It was a really interesting parallel. Um, When we look at passages like Matthew chapter 19, what we see is Jesus giving his valuable time to kids, not just to to recognize them and say that, hey, someday you're going to be valuable, but to, to actually engage with them in that moment and say, no, you are valuable now, that you have incredible, immense, God given value right now. Let these children come to me. Jesus understood the importance of setting foundational love in the lives of children, and we must understand the exact same thing. If kids are a heritage from the Lord, if they are a gift, if we are to take pride in these children that have been given to us, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing to make sure that we are raising them, loving them, and leading them well? And I think it can be really easy to look at, uh, um, for us to look at at kids as like the parents' responsibility, which is 100% true. I have three amazing kids. They are my responsibility. They are my wife's responsibility to love, lead, foster really, really well. Um, But we can't be the only adults in their life that speak value into them. Our love is really, really important. Um, And we see that, right, when when parents aren't around, how much that affects uh, children, how much that affects many of us without uh, a mom in our life or a father in our life. So so I don't want to undersell the importance of the love of a parent, but it's really important that it's not just parents that communicate to kids their inherent value. Because the truth of the matter is that kids don't always have parents that love Jesus, that are going to lead them towards human flourishing and, and, and being 
followers of of the one who's going to make their lives um, have eternal worth. Um, we also see that the kids just don't have parents, and then we also see that kids need other adults to speak words of life, affirmation, and encouragement into their lives. Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 6, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like a little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Really, really strong statement from Jesus. But what he's saying is, Children hold incredible value. Make sure that you let them know that. Make sure that you model yourself after their humility and their innocence and their faith. Jesus talks about it all the time. So what are we doing to position ourselves to to practically champion kids? I think about so many different adults in my life that were wildly impactful. I could list dozens and dozens and dozens, but a couple that pop out in my life. One was my pastor, Pammy. Pastor Pammy was a kid's pastor here at Faith Chapel for a long, long time. She's a living legend. And uh, I'll never forget being like six or seven years old and receiving a letter in the mail from Pastor Pammy. It was called a Sunshine Award. And she would send this to kids just to encourage them. And, and I opened it up and it just said, Evan, Jesus loves you. I love you. I hope you know how proud I am of you. And it was like something super, super simple. And it hung on the wall of my room for a really long time. A really long time. And I remember coming into church the, the weekend after that and going, Pastor Pammy, I got the Sunshine Award. And she said, Evan, Jesus loves you. He sees you. I hope you know how proud I am of you. And I was just like, wow, like that, that was really impactful. It carried me for a really long time. Um, I don't really consider high schoolers kids, but on some level, like still kids in in some ways. And I remember um, one of my high school teachers, We we I hope that we all had a high school teacher or a teacher that was just wildly impactful on our lives. Dan Barch was one of my high school teachers. He was my bio teacher uh, my sophomore year of high school. But he impacted me my freshman year because he was always in the hallway saying hi to people. And over the four years of my high school career, I spent so many lunches in Mr. Barch's biology class. Uh, We would sit in there. We would just have conversations. We would talk about books. We would talk about movies. We would watch movies. We would do all kinds of stuff. And uh, it was just in these like little 30-minute increments. But he was wildly impactful on my life because he showed me what it was like to follow Jesus in a secular environment. And without having to be like big and abrasive and loud about his faith, he just walked the walk. And uh, that was so amazing. So what can we do as young adults, as people who are engaging with the world around us to make sure that we value and champion kids? Because Jesus did just that. Secondly, Jesus valued women. It can be really easy to look at scripture, especially Old Testament, and believe that women were not assigned any value. Um, but that's not necessarily true. I would say that there has been there have been a lot of times, even up until the last couple of years, that I was like, man, it's really hard to read the Old Testament. It's really hard to read scripture because it just feels like women are less than. And it was a patriarchal society, 100%. They were not seen as equals. They, they did have value. If you look at Old Testament rituals, Old Testament laws, um, and, and you listen to some Old Testament theologians, one that I would really highly recommend is Sandy Richter. Um, but but uh, they talk about how these things were put into place for safety um, of the women and, and how women were actually really valuable. And they were not seen as like throwaways, but 
they were seen as not equals, but they still had inherent high value. But here's the thing. Jesus came and assigned even more value. That Jesus came and elevated the value of women in a culture that wasn't just the Jewish culture, not just the Israel. If you look at all of the cultures around in biblical times, like, man, the Jewish people actually uh, valued women higher than a lot of other cultures. And Jesus, as the Messiah, as the, the coming king, said, hey, this is the way that we are to look at women. He engaged with them. And it wasn't as much as just like speaking like, hey, start treating women better. It was what he did with his life, how he engaged with people. So in a society that was undoubtedly patriarchal, Jesus saw women as co-laborers, as equals in pursuit of the gospel. There's a story of the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman that, that he gets to engage with. And she's like, why would you, a Jewish rabbi, be talking to me at the well? But he does. There's a story of a woman who's been suffer, suffering from a lifelong bleeding disorder. And she touches the hem of Jesus's robe. And he turns around and says, who, who touched me? And his disciples are like, man, everybody's touching you. There's crowds everywhere. And he's like, no, somebody, the, I felt the power go from, from, from within me and it healed somebody and he finds her and she says it was me and he says hey you're healed your faith has healed you these these are women that nobody else would talk to these were outcasts and yet Jesus is engaging with them but one of my favorite stories is found in Luke chapter 7 uh, verses 36 through 50 so this is kind of a beast of a passage a little bit longer uh, but I think it's important that we read the whole thing to, to really get the picture of what Jesus is communicating in this moment so Luke chapter seven thirty six says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at that table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, that's the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since the one, since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave, forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon the Pharisee answers, I suppose the one he has forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for, your, for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's really important that we understand that Jesus knew her. Jesus knew her sin and Jesus knew the social and cultural implications of what it meant to engage with her in this way that he could have pulled away. He could have said, don't do that. He could have said whatever, but instead he allows this interaction to happen, not just so that she knows that she's forgiven, but he was communicating something to Simon, the Pharisee and everyone watching that this was a new posture that he was coming with grace and forgiveness and love and mercy and that the cultural constructs that have been put in place Jesus was uninterested in he was building a new kingdom Jesus saw her he loved her and he forgave her so how how does this apply to us in our western united states 2022 culture well women have come a long way in the last 3 to 4 decades from voting rights to um, 
like we're, we're trying to get equal pay, all those things, right? We hear these things in our, our cultural newsfeed every single day. And I would say that we have come a really long way. And I think that's a really amazing. But I also think that it's important for us within the church to understand that women hold incredible value in communicating what the gospel is. That Jesus created man and woman to co-labor in pursuit of the kingdom of God. So if you are a woman and you are listening to this, please hear me. You have incredible value in the kingdom of God. Not just when we get to the other side of heaven. But right now, in the midst of the kingdom that's being built here on earth, you have incredible inherent value. Jesus sees that, and we see that too. And men, make sure that every woman in your life knows that. That we might not live in a Jewish Jewish patriarchal society, but there are still things that we need to identify and make sure that the women in our life feel loved and empowered and believed in. So let's do that again because Jesus did that. Jesus next the next point is this is that Jesus engaged with the sick. Jesus engaged with the sick. Mark chapter 1 verses 39 through 42 says Jesus went into all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, "If you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean." Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was, in fact, made clean. See, this passage gets me every time, because lepers were absolute outcasts. They were a throwaway group, a group that held zero value. And yet we see Jesus give this man not just time, but relationship, interaction, physical touch. This was unheard of for this guy. And Jesus steps in and blows the cultural norms away. The line, if you are willing, and Jesus' response, I am willing, is such a tangible picture of Jesus and his people. That this man brought the messiest part of his life, and it was a physical a disease, but there was definitely things with it. This man wasn't perfect outside of his leprosy, right? So he had sins and he he had mistakes and he had brokenness, all, all of those things. And Jesus comes and he heals him. And it's a tangible picture because we get to be people who bring our messiness, who bring our brokenness and approach Jesus and say, Jesus, if you're willing, would you be willing to make me clean? And Jesus' response every single time is, I am willing. That if we want to engage with him, he will always, always, always engage with us. So would we be willing to approach Jesus every single day with our messiness? And secondly, would we also be people who are willing to engage with those that culture may deem as a throwaway group of people or a group with no value? That we would never shy away from people that need to be interacted with. Um, we often look at a disease like leprosy and we believe that it's relegated to, to biblical times, but leprosy is still around, not so much in our country, but in some third world countries. And, um, in a couple trips that, that Larissa and I have taken to Ethiopia, we've gotten to go to a leper colony in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And, uh, the first time we went we were 19 or 20. And I remember, um, how afraid I was to touch anything. This, this, this colony, they make clothes and rugs and it's like, it's incredible. Their leprosy is super severe. A lot of them are missing fingers and toes and some whole limbs. There's one guy who has no, uh, fingers on either of his hands. He just has stumps. And then he has like one toe on one foot and two toes on the other. And he's weaving quilts as he's sitting on these stairs. Like it's unbelievable to watch. 
And I remember how afraid I was to touch them because I didn't understand leprosy. If you, if you don't understand leprosy, like no judgment because we don't interact with it, but it's a hygiene disease that, that eventually just takes root and that starts to like essentially rot the body. And, uh, it takes prolonged contact with someone and no hygiene to, to run into or to contract leprosy. And so there was no chance that, that us as, as American people who regularly shower, who were going to be there for, you know, an hour are going to contract leprosy just by being in the vicinity of these people. But I was naive and I just didn't want to engage. I was kind of like, let's go, let's go. I, I just don't feel comfortable. I wouldn't even touch the clothes that were hanging on the rack that they had made. And, uh, I remember leaving and feeling really convicted and uh, really guilty because I didn't, I didn't engage with these amazing, beautiful people at all. And, um, the next year we got to go back and, uh, we go to the leper colony and there's still some trepidation in me, but, but I was like, no, this is, this is something that I, I want to engage with people. I want to, to look at different things. I wanted to buy a rug that that guy was making, right? Like there, there was a, t- a ton of things. And, um, I remember there was a, a specific circumstance that was happening while we were there. A lot of the women on our team were in the shop and it was getting a little bit crowded and believe me, none of the clothes in there were going to fit me. So, um, I, I walked out and there was this long, um, hut shed thing, um, that had about 12 women in it and they all had to have been like sixties or older. And they were, they're pulling apart and creating, um, the fabric that was going to the, like the wool, the strings, all those different things. They had, they had these wheels that they were pulling it apart so that then these clothes could then be made. And I was in there with, with our team leader, Ron and, um, he, I just saw him talking and smiling and like, he spoke very, very little Amharic, but, but he spoke just enough to say like, hi, how are you? Like, this is amazing, whatever. And, uh, I just remember I like walked in and I was watching this woman and I got down on one knee next to her just to watch this wheel that she was operating with, with missing digits. And, um, um, she just stopped and she looked at me and she put her hands out on either side of my face without touching me. And uh, it was like this moment of hesitancy on probably both of our parts. And I just smiled at her, and then she put her hands on my face. And we didn't speak a word to each other. But we looked each other in the eyes. We both started, like, tearing up. She smiled at me. I smiled at her. And uh, then I got up, and I walked out. But what I saw in that moment was Jesus that two people from opposite ends of the world in two completely different circumstances, one a 65-year-old Ethiopian leper and another 20-year-old American white guy getting to look in each other's eyes and just communicating without even saying words of, you're seen, you're known, you're loved. And I don't know what her interaction has been with people up to that point, but I do know that somebody saw her that day I felt seen that day too. We have to engage with people. Jesus was never, ever unattached from the marginalized. Would we never, ever be unattached from the marginalized? Next, Jesus included the stranger. Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verse 18 says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. Uh, this last weekend, Nate talked about the fact that there were four groups of people that, that tithe was, was, he was talking about how we engage with poverty, but four groups of people that the tithe went to, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the Levite, those who are working in the temple. And uh, foreigner is often um, talked about 
hastily because we don't want to engage with it because we live in a political world um and it's something that we just like don't don't want to talk about and i don't want to get into i don't want to get into the politics i want to look at this in a couple different ways one way would be the cultural foreigner um somebody who actually physically is not from where we are from uh, cultural differences created a massive chasm between groups of people in biblical times and it's still doing the same to us today that oftentimes people have become politics instead of just being people um, and Ju- Jesus blew that um, frame of mind out of the water as he engaged with Gentile people, as he engaged engaged with Samaritan men and women. women. He even tells a parable about the good Samaritan, where the Samaritan is the champion in the story. We still use that 2,000 years later when somebody does something like, oh, wow, he's such a good Samaritan. This good Samaritan saved the day. Like We still use that phrase, and Jewish people hated Samaritans, and Jesus elevated a Samaritan and and brought um, a posture that would say everybody has intrinsic inherent value. And then ultimately Jesus made it very clear that everyone was welcome to follow him, not just the nation of Israel. I think what we have to understand is that this still applies to us today. It, it applies to us from a physical um practical point of view as we interact with refugees that come into our country. I don't care where your political um, ideologies come from. I don't. Um, we there, there are people who are listening to this that fall way left, way right, and then there are many of us who fall um, in the middle. And I think that we have to understand that no matter what we believe the government's responsibility is with refugees and the foreigner, um, we cannot argue whether or not as followers of Jesus' responsibility to engage with the foreigner. That Jesus made it really clear that we are to be people who engage with and love people from other cultural groups. And that looks different in a lot of our different circumstances. And some of it we don't have a lot of control over, but some of it we do. And we must, we must, we must be a church that loves refugees well, who are looking for a place of refuge. And so we can talk about that, the physical, cultural foreigner, the refugee. We also need to look at the spiritual or relational refugee. And this is what I mean by that, is that every single one of us have been in a season of life um, or a point in our life where we are still looking for home that we are spiritual refugees, that we are relational refugees looking for a place to lay our head. And some of us have found family. Some of us have found community. And some of us haven't. But what that means for us as followers of Jesus, especially those of us who have found security in the Lord, who have found security in a Christ-centered community, we must be people who welcome refugees with open arms. And I don't just mean like political refugees or cultural refugees. I mean, people who are part of a different group of people that are looking for a new place to call home, people who are spiritually unresolved. If you are spiritually unresolved, if you would consider yourself a spiritual refugee looking for a place, I hope you know you're welcome here. I hope you know that you are loved and accepted before you believe what we believe or do what we do, that, that Jesus has called us to be people who welcome others in with open arms, with mercy and grace and forgiveness and and a whole lot of love. And that uh, it's not about uh, believing what we believe, but knowing that you are loved right where you're at. That we would be people who engage with the stranger on a regular basis. That we aren't just in a vacuum, that we aren't just in this place where we all think alike and we act alike, but we would be people who welcome others in on a daily basis basis? Would we be people who constantly look through the lens of Jesus and make sure that the security that we have found in him is something that we openly welcome others into as well? And lastly, Jesus loved the sinner. 
this point is literally the foundation of the gospel, so I don't want to try to break it down too much. And and you may be thinking, sinners aren't really marginalized, Evan. Like, everyone is a sinner, which is true, which is true. Everyone is a sinner. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, it sure seems like we live in a world where people are separated from, where people are looked down on, and where people are seen as less by others, where people are seen as less by us. You see, Jesus never marginalized people. Jesus never marginalized the sinner, but we do all the time because people's sin looks different than ours. Their brokenness looks different than ours. We must become people who love the sinner, the ones who sin just like us and the ones who sin differently than us, the ones who we can relate with because we've sinned in that way or we are currently stuck in an addiction like that or whatever it may be, and people who are living a lifestyle that is completely different than ours. We are still called to love the sinner. We cannot push people to the fringes of our life because their sin looks different than ours. And at the same time, we must love ourselves. As we're talking about loving the sinner and engaging with the sinner and not marginalizing the sinner, would we not marginalize ourselves? Would we not put our own self-worth uh, to the peripheral of our of our lives, to the fringes of our lives? Would we understand that every sinner deserves to be loved and accepted? That means you, and that means everyone else. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are still sinners, Christ dies for us. He loves us. And while others are still sinners, we are to love them. We are to love them, not tolerate them. Love them right where they're at. John chapter 13, 34 through 35 says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will people know that you are my disciples? Because you love one another. Would we be people who love others well. Why do we love each other? Because Jesus did. Why do we love the marginalized? Because Jesus did. Thank you for listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. If you are in the Billings area, we would love to see you at our in-person gatherings on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're unable to attend in person, there are always ways to engage online. Follow along through Instagram at faithchapel.ya or find our ministry page at faithchapel.cc. You are loved.